Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Military Monday show. So every first Monday, we get to chat with Military Mike, uh, Mike Guardia, who is a military historian and military well, a historian in, that also educates youth. Um, I'm going to say, Mike, is that right? What age group do you teach? You teach everybody. You teach our audience. You teach everyone through your books. <laughs> Basically, when it comes to history, Mike knows everything. Uh, Mike Guardia, uh, he's an award-winning author, historian, U.S. Army veteran, and uh, also named author of the year in 2021 by the Military Writers Society of America. His latest book is The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Front Lines of World War II. That's his 24th book. I'm getting it right now, see? Uh, So go to MikeGuardia.com, go to Amazon, all those great places. And if you love history, check out the History Channel series, I Was There. He was a featured historian in the episodes on the Johnstown flood of 1889, the Chernobyl disaster, the Battle of Stalingrad, and the Mm. Oklahoma City bombing. And we're hoping that that series gets picked up again so we can keep seeing Mike on there uh, because he really does do an awesome job educating not only the youth that and college students going in and learning about history, but those of us read his books and listen to him and watch him. And so he is Mr. History. So your your military Mike and Mr. History. So how about that, Mike? How are you? <laughs> sure, it works. And I am doing great, ladies. I'm rocking it. How are you? We're, We're doing good. good. We're doing good. We're excited to have you back on the show every first Monday. We love it. And um, today, though, this is this is a somber conversation. We're going to talk about September 11th. You know, first Monday this this month, September is Labor Day. And around the corner is the Remembrance Day or Patriots Day of September 11th. And uh, of course, uh, that, you know, fateful day was September 11th, 2001. 19 hijackers just came in and did some really bad, bad, horrific things and uh, changed the life of what we know is, you know, the United States of America. And, uh, you know, I'm glad you want to talk about this, Mike, because you know, one thing I wanted to touch on is you, you, we hear people argue about it all the time. And how does that feel being, you know, a veteran too? And, you know, also when you think about Desert Storm and then going mm-hmm. into the Gulf War, that's got to kind of, you know, the whole, the yeah, I, I'm trying to be politically correct, but no, like, can I say the BS factor of right. you know all of that? That's got to be kind of annoying, mm-hmm. you know, when you hear that kind of thing. Of course, yeah. I mean, almost from the get go, I was I, I was hearing voices on the fringe, 
who are insisting that 9-11 was an inside job and, you know, they mm-hmm. had as many conspiracy theories out there as the day is long. Um, you know, you, uh, I, I think running into those kind of people is par for the course. Anytime you have a catastrophic event, you know, there, there's always going to be a uh, small sliver of society who is just hell bent on trying to, well, for lack of a better term, they are really just hell bent on trying to look for the boogeyman and mm. uh, try to uh, try to invent problems that don't exist. Mm. You know, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, really, they belong in the same category as the Flat Earth Society. You know, people who uh, people mm. who uh, will always try to spin these paranoid delusions and uh, try and connect dots that are that are just not there. You know. Mm. I'm glad you bring the Flat Earth Society into that realm because you know how I hate that, right? You know, like the the Earth is not a floating tortilla. You know, right. <laughs> I just want to say I love tortillas and quesadillas, but like that's not what it looks like, okay? But um, I can't. I yeah, it's really fascinating, but it, at the same time, it's hurtful because right. so many lives were lost, and I think also the survivors have gone through so much, and the firefighters and um, you know, bless John Stewart standing up for the firefighters. Right. I just want to say, I think um, he really, he stood ground for so long trying to get those bills passed and mm-hmm. making things better. And, um, you know, I think America was really jolted that day. And let, let's go back to you okay. when it happened. How did it, how, you know, tell us a little bit about you and where you were on, on that fateful day. Well, it struck a very tender nerve with me because uh, June of 2001, in fact, almost three months to the day before 9-11, I was in New York City as a tourist. And in June of 2001, uh, I got to see the World Trade Center in person. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at both towers and I, I very distinctly remember having lunch on the observation deck of the South Tower that summer before the terrorist attack. And that was the first time I had physically been inside of the World Trade Center. And uh, I was just mesmerized by how massive the structure was, how tall those two towers were, and, uh, you know, just how fast those elevators could go from the top to the bottom. And, uh, you know, I one of the things that I remember, one of the things that really stood out to me was that you were up so high on the 107th floor and even on the top observation deck, you were up so high, you could see the curvature of the earth. And not only that, wow. you could very yeah. subtly feel the building sway back and forth. And uh-uh. It was very, very subtle, but uh-uh. when you have a structure <laughs> that is that high. And when you have a structure, um, you know, that is that heavy and the foundation is that massive, the higher up it goes, you know, the more um, you're mm. going to those very, very subtle sways Mm-mm. as, um, as it, um, as it, as, wow. as, as it goes back and forth in the wind. Um, so not only that, but uh, a little bit later that summer, um, I was also in Washington, DC, um, also as a tourist and well, not only as a tourist, but, um, also visiting the wide swaths of family that I have living in and around the DC area. Um, so to have had 
um, an intimate uh, mm. knowledge and experience with both of those two locations only three months before the terror attacks happened. Um, that really oh. struck a tender nerve with me. Uh, but on the morning of September 11th, the biggest word that I can use to describe how I was feeling at that time was really just being dumbfounded mm -hmm. because I was of the mindset in the fall of 2001 that uh, there were really no viable threats to the U.S. anymore because I am just old enough to remember when the Cold War ended. And, you know, mm. I thought like a lot of other people did at the time that, uh, you know, that Russia was really the last true enemy that we had. And now that the Soviet Union had gone the way of the dinosaur, it's like, okay, well, who else do we really have to fight? Maybe North Korea, maybe Iran. I mean, you know, China mm -hmm. in the 1990s was nowhere near what China is now in, in, in the 21st century. Uh, so, you know, we thought China was never going to have the resources to challenge us. We thought Russia was out for the count that, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they were pretty much never going to bounce back. And, you know, then they had those uh, then they had those disastrous, uh, 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 you know, conflicts. You mm -hmm. had Black October in 93 and th then you had the uh, then you had the war in Chechnya. So, yeah, we thought, OK, well, here we are. The USA is really the world's lone superpower. There's going to be nothing less for our military to do, except for any of the garden variety peacekeeping missions, you know, like maybe Somalia and Haiti and, uh, you know, the ongoing mission that we have in the Balkans. And that was going to be it. But on the morning of September 11th, when I first got news that an airplane had uh, rammed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, my first thought was, oh, my God, what a horrible accident. And I was thinking, my God, I was just there three months prior. Um, what a terrible mistake. Maybe a pilot lost his bearings or, you know, or something. Right. And, uh, and uh, we were watching real time news footage of the inferno that was going on inside of the North Tower. And as we were watching that and we were thinking to ourselves, oh, my God, what a horrible tragedy in real time footage. That's when we saw the second plane plow into the building. And that's when everybody knew. I mean, it was that aha moment. This is no yeah. accident. Yeah. Somebody's doing this on purpose and we don't know it yet, but we are at war with somebody. Mm -hmm. And uh, that it was very, it was a short time thereafter that we heard about the plane that was plowing into the Pentagon. And now it was confirmed. And there were two thoughts that were going through my head simultaneously. One uh, was of a, uh, was, was of a grave concern to my cousin, David, who was working at the Pentagon at the time, he was a he, he was a, um, a a construction contractor who was um, working at I, I want to say he was on the west side of E Ring at that time. Um, but uh, you know, I immediately started thinking about him. I said, "Oh my God, I hope David's okay." And we found out very shortly thereafter that he was. He was on the other side of the Pentagon, but he brings his own personal narrative to the story of having been there right. when that impact mm. and how he was trying to figure out what happened. And the explosions and the vibrations that almost sent everybody to their knees, that were even on even on mm -hmm. the other side of the building. Uh, so then I thought to myself, okay, well, what is next? What other landmark is going to get this? Who is hijacking all these planes and why are they ramming them into all of these landmarks? Is this uh, an inside job from North Korea? Um, is it uh, you know? Is mm -hmm. it uh, is it? I don't know. Is it like Timothy McVeigh 2.0? 
or uh, <laughs> just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really right. It's crazy because when you see it, it's like everything goes through your head. And when it when we first saw it, I mean, the fact mm. that it was televised live was crazy mm -hmm. too. I mean, that was like what? And and then there were reports of people still doing deals as things mm. were going down. Like we're not stopping business. There was this um, "you're not taking us down" attitude, right. and I think that carried through the whole mm -hmm. process. And I think that's how America kept standing up. We're, we're, you're not taking us down. And you, we didn't even need right. the president to tell us that. And at the time, George Bush did, you know, obviously go for it. And and everybody's argued on that, too. Mm -hmm. I want to go to Afghanistan. Because I remember, you know, just when we started our radio show was not that, what, five years later, 2008? And of course, at that time, we had this depression that happened, you know, like, a, you know, the money was not flowing in this country. And we started our show and Craig Mullaney came on our show. He wrote it, uh, wrote uh, the Unforgiven Minute and he served in the military, also West Point grad and all kinds of things. And he just really at that point even said then that we weren't looking at Afghanistan close enough and not doing what we were supposed, we needed to do pay more attention and be there longer. I mean, that was 2008, nine, I think maybe mm -hmm. it was later that he did his book. I'll have to look it up, but I mean, I just know it was our, around our beginning time, maybe 2010, 11. I don't I have to look it up, but when you think about it, Afghanistan has been this point of contention with the country where right. people are, are still arguing. And then when we left, it was a really weird way of how we just pulled up everything. Right. So what do you, what do you think about that? Because it, to me, okay. didn't it, it doesn't it touch and connect with September 11th or am I jumping ahead a little fast? It does. Um, and the situation in Afghanistan is pretty complex, but how I take a look at it, and I know that I'm probably going to have a very unpopular opinion amongst many uh, of the listeners and viewers, but I will not call Afghanistan a defeat for the U.S. for the very mm -hmm. simple reason that we killed Osama bin Laden before we left. Mm -hmm. Now, when I take a when I take a broad stroke of the conflict, I say to myself, okay. I think a lot of people tend to forget that that uh, the Taliban were incidental to Al Qaeda, and if there had not been a September 11th, and there had not been an Osama bin Laden, and there had not been an Al Qaeda, then we never would have gone to Afghanistan in the first place. Right. Bin right. Laden is the entire reason why we went there. We mm -hmm. never had good relationships with the Taliban, even prior to 9-11. Prior to 9-11, they were nobody's friend. I remember when they destroyed those Buddhist statues mm -hmm. and oh. everybody and their brother uh, in the international community mm -hmm. was begging and pleading with them, please don't do this. Do not destroy those third century Buddhist statues. Yeah. They'll give you anything you want. Do you want $1 million? Do you want $2 million? Do you want, a, uh, do, mm -hmm. do you want us to look the other way on the opium trade? But they just would not listen. And, uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, back to my original point, though, uh, the Taliban were always incidental to Al Qaeda. And, mm -hmm. and 
we were right to go into Afghanistan. We were right to occupy for as long as it took. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. To root out the Al-Qaeda leadership, and destroy them and capture them and kill Osama bin Laden to kill the perpetrator and the mastermind mm. of 9-11. So where I think we went wrong, and uh, you know, this will probably go into a much deeper geographical and philosophical debate, but where I think we went wrong was thinking we could engage in nation building and try to rebuild Afghanistan mm-hmm. in yeah. Uh, to what you would see in in the West as far as democracies goes, because uh, if you look at the Middle East in the broader sense, particularly Afghanistan, you're talking about a population in a part of the world where democracy and these democratic uh, these democratic slash republican forms of government have never really taken hold, and they don't have a cultural tradition of being compatible with how that, how that part exactly. of the world is and how they operate. Yeah. So what I think we would have been, I think what we would have been more efficient in doing is to say, okay, hey, we're here. We're going to occupy. We're going to stay here as long as it takes for us to destroy Al-Qaeda's leadership, to kill or capture Osama bin Laden. And when we have eliminated the perpetrator of 9-11, we will have achieved justice for those who perished. We will declare victory and we will go home and we will send a clear message to the Taliban or whoever else is in charge of Afghanistan at that point. Don't ever even think about making trouble for us again, or we're going to come back and we're going to kill even more of you. Now, most of the time when you do that once, it's enough for the enemy to learn their lesson. Sometimes as in as was the case with Germany, they have to learn it a few times before they get the message. But how you win a war is you smash, you trash, and then you leave. And before you leave, you say, hey, look, buddy, don't make trouble for me again, or we're going to come back and we're going to do this all over again. Rinse, wash, repeat. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, I think that, uh, I think that after we confirmed that Osama bin Laden was dead, after SEAL Team 6 killed him. Oh, yeah. That would, have been, that would have been enough for us to declare victory. And we say, okay, hey, justice has been achieved. We have eliminated mm-hmm. the perpetrator of 9-11. So Afghanistan, I don't care who you put in next, but hey, mind your P's and Q's, cross mm-hmm. every T, dot every I, because if you ever harbor another terrorist who makes trouble for us again, we're going to come back and more of you are going to freaking die. 
So that's you know, but people. Well, this there's you've got to think. People came onto our soil and killed, and did it in a way that was insanity. Like you know, innocent civilians. And I look at what's going on, where even in Ukraine right now, where kids and women and children, you know, the whole thing. It's like that's out. It seems that the the newer wars, some of the etiquette has completely been tossed etiquette aside <laughs> doesn't matter about women and children in africa half of the time that didn't actually either yeah exactly and nancy and i from living in different cultures know hey you mm. know it's different and you can't go in don't go like you know with us traveling the country full-time and going into different towns and smaller communities you see people from bigger cities in this community i mean in this country go into these smaller communities to get away from the city. And what do they do? They go, we're going to make this just like LA. And the small mm-hmm. community people say, get the out of my town. You know, so there's already a rift. And yet we're they want that peace and quiet, but they're going to create exactly what they had in a big city and bring it to the small town. It happens in Africa. It happens like Afghanistan, well, right? What you're talking about. You can't start mm-hmm. Americanizing another country. Right. But you can be there and be as peaceful as possible. Am I hearing this right? Like, don't try to Americanize Afghanistan. It's a different country. Do what you can peacefully there. But also like, hello, this is where it all came from. Right. And well, I won't say you go in there with a completely peaceful mindset. I'll say, you know, um, it's uh, I'll say that it's more of a modernized version of big stick diplomacy. You know, mm-hmm. say, hey, here I am. And the reason I'm here is because you were harboring somebody who attacked me. So here's my big stick. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to wear a, a smile on my face, but don't turn my smile upside down because if mm-hmm. you do, this big stick Damn. is going to crack you right across the head. What, what, uh, what, when you mm-hmm. think about September 11th, you know, it, it really shocked this country into tighter security, the airports, right. you know, airlines, just, shopping going it, it 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 changed how we did business well, whether we went we to get, conventions we or not complacent we really yeah because we we were very sitting you know la 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 nothing can hurt us and it did um for you you know i know you were in your later teen years did it change anything for you did that kind of well, propel sure. you to, to surf right well I will say that before 9-11, I always wanted to serve in the military. Um, but uh, prior to 9-11, I was kind of on the fence about, well, okay, maybe I'll do the Army. Maybe I'll do the Air Force. Might do the Navy. Oh, okay. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I was gravitating more towards the Army from the beginning. Um, but what really was the game changer for me was September 11th. That's when I said, okay, now I know for sure that I'm going to. And mm-hmm. the Army is most definitely what I'm going to do. I want to be in a land-based component. Um, but it did change a lot for me. You know, I mean, even from the perspective of, uh, you know, even from the, even from the perspective of my late teen years, um, as, as I was at the time, uh, one was because I noticed there was a, a tremendously dramatic shift in airport security. I remember prior to 9-11, I could go through airport security without a ticket. I didn't need a gate pass. I didn't have to take my shoes off. 
I didn't yeah. have to, I didn't have to take <laughs> laptops out of a bag or anything like that. I didn't have to surrender any liquids. And Mike, don't TSA take your didn't... shoes off, damn it. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, all I had to do was all I had to do was go up to the Air, air, airport contract security person and I had to go through the metal detector so they made sure mm. that you know mm. I didn't have a weapon on me or anything and I'd say uh yes officer um I am meeting my mom who's coming in at like gate I don't know mm. f256 or whatever and uh yeah and all they would tell me is okay kid uh if you're looking for that gate it's going to be right down this concourse you're going to mm. go like I don't know, 500 feet or whatever it is. And uh, yeah, um, have fun. If you uh, if you get lost or if you run into any kind of a problem, you know, just pick up one of the concourse phones and I could go right to the gate and I could wait outside the gate for any flight that my parents were coming back on. Hmm. And now you can't do that. I mean, now, yeah. you know, now, of course, in the wake of 9-11, you had the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security uh, you, you had the TSA. Uh, TSA did not exist prior to that. You know, it was like like mm. all the airport security that I saw. It was either contracted to a third party security form, or the um, mm-hmm. or the uh, or the odd occasion that I would see like one of the city airport police or maybe uh, some of the municipal cops who were who who, who were on a detail to do that. Um, but, uh, I also, uh, I also saw firsthand what it did to a lot of the airline pilots in my community because I was growing up in Houston, Texas, and that was mm. a huge hub for, for what was then Continental Airlines, you know, before it merged with United. And, uh, there were a ton of Continental pilots in Houston that, uh, they weren't fired and they weren't laid off, but, uh, the airline industry as a whole, um, furloughed a lot of pilots and they used furlough as, as an economic buzzword, they said, well, look, um, in the wake of 9-11, all airline traffic has come to a standstill. You know, we're having to get bailouts from the government. Nobody's flying anymore. We've halted all flight operations. Therefore, hmm. we don't have any fares coming in. We don't have any money to pay our pilots, much less any money to pay our ground crews. So we're not going to fire you. We're still going to keep you on the employee roles. But what we're going to do instead is we're going to furlough you, which means, hey, uh, go home and find something else to do. And if the airline industry recovers, we'll call you back and put you on flight status. So uh, a lot of pilots found themselves out of a job. Uh, a lot of them, a lot of them had to, uh, had to scramble to make ends meet. I know mm-hmm. of quite a few who, um, who would eventually go on to become these private pilot instructors at these local airfields. They, they uh, started doing that for a while. And, uh, and then there was one pilot for American Airlines who ended up becoming a cab driver for like two years until the furlough ended. Wow. And, uh, and there were other pilots who took a little bit more of a creative twist to it. Um, since a lot of airline pilots are former military, uh, a lot of them actually tried to get, they, 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 they tried to get back on active duty. And if they were too old to be reaccepted into American service, uh, what a lot of these older pilots started doing was they started selling their services to foreign air forces. I know of two pilots in particular. What? One was a Marine Corps pilot. Yeah, he was an F-18 pilot who had flown uh, combat missions in Desert Storm. He retired from the service, I think, in 97, and then he started flying for American. Well, he got furloughed 
after 9-11 and he said, well, shoot, I don't have a plane to fly. No airline is hiring anybody. They're all trying to get rid of people. I'm too old to go back on active duty. Let me see if I can sell my services someplace else. So he picks up a phone and he calls the Royal Australian Air Force. And he says, hey, guys, I am a former Marine Corps F-18 pilot, and I know you Aussies fly F-18s. I have like 350 combat hours of, Mm. of all this flight time, and I think you could use a pilot like me. Is there any chance that I can sign on to your Air Force? Now, an American trained pilot is worth his weight in gold anywhere in the world, and a lot of foreign militaries will jump to hire former American pilots. And the Aussies told him, oh, that sounds good, mate. You come on down under. <laughs> you guys can jump on the Barbie. Bring it. <laughs> yeah. 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 And he ended up flying F-18s in the Australian Air Force for like four years that way. Wow. And, uh, and I yeah, want to apologize to all my Australian friends for saying shit for the Barbie because they're going to hit me yeah. over the head. But yeah. no, no. And, but wow. Yeah. So this, and he wasn't this the is... only one, too. I mean, this is amazing when you think about how, because even now, I know over shows, you've talked about pilots, even out of World War II, coming, mm-hmm. going in and ending up being pilots and different stages, just ending up being in commercial pilots. But even 2000, you go from 2001, here comes this crazy tourism, like halt, basically. Then yeah. 2008, we have the dip with the economic crisis, right? So it's been kind of screwy for the airline. And look at now, right? Mm-hmm. Now we don't have enough airline people. No, we don't have enough pilots because what did we do? We shoved them all off, right? And right. and people looked at it as, hey, I'm not going to get into that because number one, the amount of diligence that goes into it. And, you know, it's up and down because it has been up and down. But like this guy, you're talking about going into Australia. So there's pilots that are going and going into other countries. That's like our there's military guys that go into being bounty hunters throughout the world, too. I mean, right. I'm not I know that's a little different, but just saying we should do a show on that. <laughs> but but yeah, so Australia, did they go to England? Did they or or was it just anywhere that they could go as a pilot? Uh, well, let, let, let's see. That particular gentleman, he um, he ended up flying in Australia for four years. And uh, from what I understand, uh, he, he did his four-year tour in Australia proper, but he also did a lot of joint exercises through, through, throughout the Pacific Rim. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I don't know if... Uh, he was part of an expeditionary force or not, but um, one of the more interesting stories that I can tell you that very closely reflects his is of another American pilot who coincidentally is a Jewish American, and he had flown F-15s in the Air Force prior to becoming an airline pilot. Well, when he got furloughed, if you are a member of the Jewish faith, you are automatically a citizen of Israel. So he called up the IDF. He said, you know, hey, uh, I am uh, I, I am a Jewish American. I am an F-15 trained aviator. I got furloughed from the American airline industry. Can I invoke via my faith to exercise my citizenship of Israel and come fly F-15s for the Israeli Air Force? And only a few weeks later, he was on the ground in Tel Aviv. 
getting his wow. uh, getting to uh, to join an F-15 squadron there. So uh, yeah, it um, it it really does precipitate a lot of uh, a lot of interesting career changes and. Um, and I'll uh, I'll say that it even gave them a uh, it gave them a broader cultural context within the opera where where they could operate uh, that they would not have had otherwise. Wow! So was that gentleman part of your book, uh, Wings of Fire? Was it was that membership fees apply after free trial? Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better. You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it, but nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Or did you find out about him when you were writing about F-14s and F-15s? <laughs> no, I, I actually found, um, gosh, I found that out. Uh, you know, I found out both of those stories when they broke. Uh, it was like mm. 2000, it was like 2004 was when both of oh. those stories, uh, was, was, when, was when both of those stories were circulated. And uh, it didn't even cross my mind to try to track down that gentleman who, who had flown for the Israeli Air Force because, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that he would have had, um, I'm not sure that he would have had any engagements against any Syrian MiGs or you know, even any uh, ground targets against Hezbollah. But uh, yeah, that definitely would have been interesting to find out. Goodness. Lisa, now yes. you make it regret that one. I know, wings of fire. Listen, I've got Tomcat Fury, um, Wings of yeah. Fire. I'm just saying uh, F-14s, F-15s. Yeah. Sorry, Nancy, go ahead. No, well, if the book ever goes say, to a second edition, I'll, yeah. Yeah, I'll try to I'll try to track that down. Are are we a little bit lax on our side here? Because having lived in different countries where things seem to be a little more strict. Mm-hmm. when you're flying and I, I don't know i'm just wondering if the are we too complacent or we just we're so big nobody would dare do what they already did um I think we're complacent now well no but i mean you know i find it, it's interesting to me because i always feel like in other countries they really seem to be a little more almost paranoid sometimes like they're very security conscious where i don't know if we're just trying to put a good face on it and still being security conscious but i just wonder sometimes if we're too comfy because we well america learned about terrorism on the home front during september 11th for the yeah, general populace but, but Whereas have in, we in, gone back right into being complacent yeah and that's a good thing because you know even 
And we lived in South Africa and Kenya and even England. Yeah. Terrorism, even in Europe, terrorism is Mm -hmm. a big deal, you know, and um, it was funny Mm -hmm. because I just reunited with my, you know, best friend from high school, which we haven't seen each other for 30 years and we're so much younger. But, (laughs) you know, talking about these differences and we're trying to figure out, was it the era? Was it the place because we lived in different places all of us and mm-hmm. and and it comes down to america being you know it is the land of the free right and freedom of speech freedom of uh, religious belief and everything but i think september 11th really took the general populace um maybe military people would and could have seen it and, and politically savvy people or newsworthy you know people that really watch stuff mm-hmm. could have seen it coming maybe but to me I, I always think something is coming because that's how we were kind of living you know right and that's a really weird thing to say but you always knew something was coming well no we so, were just really more aware yeah so here has always felt because very... something was always happening Right, and especially in different countries in Africa, for especially, um, you know, like even now, I walk. If I'm going to go to the car, I walk. I always approach the car from the back so I can see through to see if there's yeah. somebody in the car. I always have my keys spread through my fingers so if I had to punch somebody, I could listen. Don't them. mess with yeah. my mom, man. No, no, <laughs> because I learned that. I learned serious. that. I learned that to be aware is a good thing. And I, and I wonder sometimes, you know, are we going to keep falling back into that non-awareness as a population? I don't think we should be paranoid, but I think we should be aware. And there is a difference between being paranoid and being aware. But Or creating a conspiracy or do, or do we that just get September so 11th didn't happen. Even on the government level, do we get so comfortable that we're not watching? I don't know. Yeah, Mike. Answer yeah. The, the, the biggest questions <laughs> here of the day. Okay, sure. So uh, I will say that having served in the military, there is a very big baseline security that we maintain. Mm-hmm. Um, but the severity with which that baseline grows is often a function of our proximity to a major incident. Um, because the dynamic here in America is that incidents like that are few and far between. We mm-hmm. typically regard them as the exception instead of the rule. Um, I think if our collective experience as Americans had been different, say if they were more comparable to what you may have seen in South Africa, Mm. where, you know, the constant threat of terror was really a daily thing, or if uh, it was similar to what a lot of the Israeli city, uh, the Israeli citizens experience, Mm. um, you know, with varying degrees of ferocity, depending on mm. how close they live to the Gaza Strip or the West Bank. Right. Um, the, more, uh, the more intense it is and the, and the higher the frequency with which it occurs, I think is what precipitates these higher postures of security. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, um, like I remember one of, the, uh, one of the big things that 
came out in the wake of the September 11th attacks was the threat con level. And it was, it was a very fancy color coded system. It was what level of threat conditions do we have today? Is it going to be red? Is it going Mm. to be yellow? And they would go through the entire spectrum of primary colors. Mm. And uh, there would be different factors that would go into that. Well, I remember seeing that Threatcom spectrum for at least a good solid two years after 9-11. But afterwards, I, I never really saw it used as much beyond the military mm. after that. Um, so, you know, really I, I, I think that uh, I really think it goes in cycles. I think we, we always try to maintain a baseline measure of security. And that baseline is a moving goalpost. After we have one tragic incident, it always moves up further and further. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the intensity with which you get this security apparatus is largely a function of what you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Um, like, I mean, I can give you an example uh, for, um, for not just acts of terrorism per se, but, you know, just like these sociological phenomenons that, uh, you know, have happened that have raised all that level of baseline security. Um, for instance, uh, Prior to the 1980s, when you would go into a drugstore and you would buy any variety of OTC drugs, uh, you could open up the container right there in the store and Mm -hmm. you would never see a safety seal at all. Um, And it was 1982, I think it was, um, where you had this one fellow who I can only call a a domestic terrorist decided that he wanted to go on his own Johnny on the spot killing spree and start putting arsenic in a lot of the OTC um, drugs oh, that you wow. your local wow. Walgreens. And this led mm. to a massive outbreak of arsenic poisoning. Mm. Well, um, I think it was the FDA got in on it. And, and uh, I'm, gosh, I don't even know if the CDC was around back then. I think it was, or, you mm. know, whatever body we mm. had prior to, uh, prior to the CDC, they all got on it and said, okay, well, we have this massive, you know, social emergency now. So now that we have this mass outbreak of arsenic poisoning, we need to put some kind of safety measure in place to make sure that nobody can ever tamper with any of these OTC drugs that you buy at your local CVS or Walgreens. Mm. And that was the start of those safety seals that you see oh, wow. all of your Tylenol and Advil and whatnot. Mm. So uh, yeah, that was a uh, that was an example of something where you know we. we we, we, we weren't complacent per se. We just never really thought that it could happen. But once it did, that baseline security measure rose. Goes to up. Another level. Yeah. It's like how we, how quick we got a vaccination, you know, people right. we got and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's, it's not perfect and well, nothing will be perfect in a, in a speedy thing. But I think what's, what's, you know, interesting about like, you know, our background a little bit different. And I mean, I know we sound weird coming over here, coming home and being a little bit hardcore but if you lived the way we lived it, you you would be too or dead you know well, no you, you just, have to be aware you, you have to be aware to be but, aware and and there's and there's nothing wrong with being aware no there's, no and again our, being aware is not the same as being paranoid no but this is what i wanted to ask is you know there were i mean it changed things for the general population, definitely, if you lived in the places where it happened, like New York City and New Jersey, um, you know, just like Saturday Night Live, that was epic. I mean, 
Everybody could be talking different about Rudy Giuliani, but he did a good Saturday Night Live and got the city back together, whether we like him or not. Everybody's got a different opinion. But at that moment, you've got to say the country came together over Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. And that was a really difficult thing to pull comedy when it was such devastation. You know, September 11th was no joking matter. And there's still mm-hmm. so much uh, trauma Trauma begets trauma. And I think we're not done. We never will be because violence still pops up. But do you think, I mean, when you think about that and how much has been going on, we've talked about Afghanistan. I mean, obviously, we've had so much going on war-wise since then and a little bit before then. But do did we change in military tactics how things went after september 11th did that make us change how we operated it did and i was actually experiencing a lot of the downstream effects of that um prior to 9 11 it was still very much the conventional army um you know everything that we trained for um all of our modules of instruction they were all they were all geared towards how to fight a conventional enemy Mm-hmm. You know, what would we see in a Soviet style enemy? What would we see if we were to go to war against the North Koreans? What would we mm-hmm. see if we were ever to go to war with Iran? It was very much peer to peer. It was a peer to peer mentality. You know, how are we going to take on conventional forces in a conventional fight? Uh, then after September 11th, there was this radical shift where, where, set, where uh, a lot of our senior military leaders were saying, okay, well, we need to keep those core competencies, right? But we need to know how to fight counterinsurgency. We need mm-hmm. to know how to understand the realities of what they were calling asymmetric warfare. And we need to know mm-hmm. how to work amongst the population. We have to, uh, we have to level up some of the baseline um, civil military operations that we learned throughout the Bosnian campaign. Uh, so what that ended up doing for us who were coming into the military at around that time is we had to, uh, we had to start off with a foundation of how to fight a conventional threat and then take that and learn how to tweak it to this thing that we had vaguely heard about called counterinsurgency. And it's weird because uh, the military as a whole had taken counterinsurgency out of the training environment after Vietnam, because at that time they considered it to be passe. Uh, But now they were reintroducing and retooling a lot of these concepts and, uh, you know, trying to uh, trying to take all of these, uh, all of these different military specialties and blend them together into a baseline competency for how to handle these counterinsurgency operations. And, you know, I, from what I saw, it worked very well, but at the same time, you had uh, two downstream effects of it. You had, you had an entire generation, or I'd probably say two generations of soldiers who were, you know, who were constantly voicing their displeasure saying, hey, this is not a war that we were trained to fight. We feel like we're behind the curve. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been trained for these peer-to-peer threats. Now we're having to learn this silly nonsense of counterinsurgency, um, which I think was a very valid claim. 
But then you also had an upcoming generation of soldiers who were so focused on the counterinsurgency fight that they really didn't know how to conduct any part of conventional warfare. I remember when Hmm. I was a platoon leader and I was taking over my very first tank platoon, I, I essentially had an entire generation of E5s and E6s, you know, um, sergeants and staff sergeants who had never done any type of, who had never done any type of uh, force on force conventional training before, because all their rotations to uh, the National Training Center up to that point had been training them on how to fight the counterinsurgency. They had never really done those mock tank on tank battles in the desert. Oh, no and, Wow. And I, that uh, that was alarming to a lot of us because we're thinking to ourselves, OK, well, yeah, we, we know that the, the current operating environment is one that warrants us to be mindful of how to fight a counterinsurgency. But we, we seem to be losing the edge on our core competencies there. And uh, it, it was it was around that time that we started doing the first major shift back to, OK, we need to retool ourselves on how to do these conventional fights. And uh, that was one thing that. I was very pleased by that, uh, you know, we were able to, uh, we were able to recapture, or I guess I won't say recapture, mm-hmm. we were just able to revitalize um, mm-hmm. our, our core competencies in that regard. Wow, wow, that's, you know, when you think about that, that's some crazy, I mean, it is what? like a whole different war. It's kind of like going into Vietnam where, holy crap, well, all the of cultures, this has changed. The cultures are so different and the yeah. lifestyles are different mm-hmm. and how the people react are so different. I know that from living in different countries, how somebody reacts to news when you're living in Kenya as an American is not what happens when you're living in the States as an American. But, but fight, fighting you, a battle you don't is even, different. You barely even read the news about Kenya unless you're living there. Then all of a sudden it becomes important. You know? yeah, but everybody is fighting differently. <laughs> Different yeah. countries yeah, fight and they, differently. Different the levels. Like, yeah. um, I know from watching what happened in Kenya, they can be real sneaky. You know what I mean? They're, it's not conventional warfare. It's more guerrilla-type warfare. And, and it's sneaky. And um, if you don't know the culture, I don't know how you could go in and plan a battle with a faction of people or anywhere in the world, if you don't know how they think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So to me, it's like, it, it's. Um, do they teach you, you that have in, to, in military? In military like, how you, you, you have to know how the yeah. other side thinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That was, um, that was, uh, that was a very big part of my own military training is, you know, mm. you had to have a fundamental knowledge of the Arabic language. You had to have a fundamental yeah. knowledge of Pashtun. Mm. You, uh, you had to know, uh, you had to know a, um, a fundamental core of knowledge about, about both of those cultures in the Middle East. And uh, that, uh, that, that echoes really the experience that my dad had when he was mm. in the army of the cold war era, you know, he was in the army oh, wow. in the 1980s um, where, you know, every, every facet of their training was, was geared toward, towards, towards defeating the Soviet threat. And, you know, not only that, knowing how the Soviets fought, 
knowing what political ideologies really stood mm -hmm. out the most to them and uh, you know how to um, how to mobilize uh, you know how, how to mobilize any of the uh, any of the Eastern European populations below the nuclear threshold if the Cold War ever got hot and uh, mm. you know this also reminds me um, of uh, the things that I touched on in the fires of Babylon and days of fury mm. uh, the border missions that our troops were on in, in in the latter days of the Cold War how you had to know all of the border procedures you had to know what the enemy mm -hmm. looked like you had to know how to process any of the refugees who would try to sneak across the Iron Curtain and uh you know and oh wow uh, and uh you know be able to glean what bits of intelligence that you could from them so yeah it's uh yeah the the, the uh from my own experiences in the army uh i can say that uh you know the the cultural competency was very heavy in the education um you know sometimes sometimes uh sometimes that education is rendered very well and then other times not so much not and so uh, much, yeah. other times it's confounded by um by a by a lack of clarity at the higher echelon leadership mm -hmm. um but uh you know from my own experiences it was administered very well you know i, I want to go to where we are now today you know having this discussion about september 11th but to mm -hmm. not look at where we are now and where we're going it seems like, you know, people are, you know, general population speaking, generalizing. It's yeah. kind of a crappy world right now. I mean, in regards to wars, look what's going on with Ukraine. I mean, remember, we talked with you in February when mm. it started, yeah. you know, right? and it's still going. And, you know, just, you know, we pulled out of Afghanistan. I mean, look at what's happened since we talked to you. You know, way back when, I mean, Afghanistan's been pulled out. I When was that? I All I know is we were in South Carolina going through a swamp going, don't get chiggers. You know, those little <laughs> things, those little bugs that get you. Oh, <laughs> I know chiggers. Oh, yes. I know. I think we I've, all know I've chiggers. Had, I've had plenty get, of bad you know, experiences with those. And bugs. we're talking about the bugs, everybody, <laughs> in case that comes out wrong. Um, you know, so seriously, though, that's not fun. But we were, I remember being there and just going, oh, my God, in Afghanistan, we're, we're leaving Afghanistan. And, you know, there's just been so much over the last couple of years when you think about it. And we think about September 11th and September 11th changed so much about how we, you know, are. And it doesn't feel like we've gotten any safer in a way. I mean, so where do you think we are now in regards to, you know, your friends and who are still serving? And mm -hmm. I mean, now it's like we have to really know yeah. all the countries. You know what right. I mean? We need well, to know China. Well, we need to know Russia. Yeah. We need, to, you know, I you know, know we have to know I, I, all I that, think, but you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. I think on the whole, we're safer. Uh, but there are still a lot of loose ends that mm -hmm. we need to tie up. Uh, you know, I, I look at I look at the big picture and I tell myself, OK, well, there hasn't been a major terror attack in over 20 years. Mm. We have prevented 9-11 from. Thanks for itself. making me feel younger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as young anymore either. So, <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, so I feel that a lot of good has been done on that front. And, uh, you know, for it, 
as easy as it can be to pick on the TSA and as easy as it can be to, you know, try and find holes in the armor of the Department of Homeland Security, I will say that overall we are safer. We, uh, we have, you know, we've risen that baseline competency uh, to a level that I think will very much help prevent another 9-11. Does that mean it's a 100% foolproof plan? No. No. Uh, because, you know, I, I think that uh, I think for one, well, we need to, um, you know, there are a lot of loose ends that we need to tie up with regards to, uh, you know, some of the non-state actors that are floating around the Middle East and throughout a lot of Central Asia. And I think we need mm-hmm. to also be mindful of, uh, you know, how their how their tools are changing, because uh, the enemy was definitely taking notes in the 20 plus years that we were fighting the war on terror. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on many other battlefronts, the war on terror is still going on, but uh, you know, they've, uh, they, they, uh, there's been a shift in tactics. It's, it's um, I think for the foreseeable future, we're going to see a lot more soft attacks, a lot more cyber attacks. So we need to be mindful of that. And we also need to be mindful of uh, these non-state actors becoming proxy agents of a lot of our geopolitical enemies since, uh, you know, I, I and I, again, this is not going to be a popular opinion, but I take a look at Russia and I take a look at China and mm-hmm. I think and I take a look at ourselves even. And the three of us collectively know that it would not be a favorable outcome to any of the three of us if we were to all get involved in a shooting war. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the new form of mutual assured destruction has taken on more of an economic tone because of all the bonds and all the loans and all of the and all of the political uh, iron, BS. Uh, yeah and all, all of the mm-hmm. iron trade networks uh, that would set off so many brutal chain reactions. Um, you know, it would be very easy to say that you know economic warfare would produce only losers and no winners. So uh, what I think is going to be at least the status quo for the time being is you'll see a lot of these uh, you'll see a lot of these covert wars you'll see a lot of soft attacks you'll see um you'll see the uh you'll see the three superpowers if you will russia china and the us um you know triangulating these different strategies and tactics using agents by proxy whether mm. it's a hacker network whether it's a johnny on the spot mm. affiliation with hezbollah or whoever um but, and uh, at the same yeah. time, we have climate change stuff, which is not to be ignored because of the immigration of it all. And that's actually happening now. People are moving and in the military mm-hmm. are the ones called for just about everything. So um, there's um, that on top, too, I think, a little uh, bit. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how I feel about climate change. Um, I mean, I... I I've heard the arguments for and against. I remember when I was a kid growing up in the early '90s. That was when the uh, that was when the big uh, that, that was when the big discussion happened about the ozone layer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it, it, yeah, I, I really don't know how I feel about climate change. On the one hand, I, I I think some of it is contributed to man-made activities. On the other hand, I think it's also attributable to cyclic changes in, in the Earth's mm-hmm. temperature cycle. So uh, it, it could very well be both factors are contributing to it. But um, I mean, the people I, are immigrating no, no matter what. There's migration. Oh, yeah. Like, and so the military is called in either way. And right. it, it, it's 
Nancy and I are the same way. I mean, it's um, definitely pro-environment, nature, and all of that, as everyone knows. However, there is just, I mean, we've had ice ages before. Why wouldn't we start? Yeah, I think there is that, but the the earth is going to do what the earth does. And yeah, yeah, I mean, and and maybe we're pushing the envelope. I'm pretty sure we are in a lot of regards. So we're going to make things happen faster than they would have. Can we halt them? We could slow it down. But but my my point is. But I think, you know, it's like the dinosaurs went extinct. Did the dinosaurs make themselves go extinct? I don't think so. I think that. No, it's it's a weird thing. But but we are having this migration Uh, of people because mm -hmm. no matter what, like there's islands and, you know, in Alaska where people are moving and, and stuff. So I think our military is getting all these extra layers is my point is we are in a different zone again for military supporting you know um and it's gonna it's gonna change it's gonna keep changing so good conversation mike as always you always teach us something you know you always do and so book 25 you ready for that yeah yeah book 25 coyote the coyote i listen we Uh love that name you know we do we talked about that last time everyone coyote recon the forgotten wars of colonel j d vanderpool like that's just the best name j my name is j d vanderpool don't mess yeah that's cool like that's just a good name that should be like a tv netflix series you know uh so that's the next biography coming out from uh, mike guardia again everyone go to mikeguardia.com go to amazon get his books there He's on the show every first Monday. So join us for our Monday, our Military Monday show. But also his latest book is The Combat Diaries, True Stories from the Frontlines mm. of World War II. But I would say people have got to go read more Wings of Fire, you know, don't you think? Tomcat Fury, like sure. yeah. <laughs> from what we were talking about today. I mean, we've talked, I mean, it just when you think about like the Gulf War, Desert Storm, all of this, it just... I just wish I Uh. had those kind of books when I was in school trying to get through history because I yeah Mike where were you for Nancy's history lessons no (laughs) I felt like history was the most boring thing ever yeah and seriously I did and then I got a good history teacher in high school that opened my eyes so I I hope that teachers of history would you know, jump on these these books and yeah, make and it them. make it more story felt, like making the people in history real people. Yeah, that's what it's like we always talk that's, about. It's like you, you can know, you can identify with the soldiers, the people, the like the exactly the women pilot, the the Russian women that came in on the planes and like move over. I, I had to watch my language again. Sorry, but like I, when women no, come but I just feel in, like. like you know, history is not boring if it's if it's presented correctly and with empathy and color. Right. And so I yeah. I applaud you on that because I love your books. You know, now that. get on the yeah, get that twenty fifth one out October, right? We we're ready. I feel like we've yes, had ma'am. a drought. I mean, from the twenty fourth to I mean, come on, a few months have gone by. <laughs> this is like, come on, uh, Mike, come on. You have to do a hundred <laughs> books, yes, man. Yes, a hundred books. We want to see a hundred books. That's it. Well, what, I you're stop getting, there. 
You're at a quarter. Oh, a quarter. I like it. 25 like it. is a big cornerstone. I love it. I'm excited. Everyone, MikeGuardia.com. Keep up with them on his website and Amazon and also uh, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube big time. But and now he's on Instagram. On Instagram. Oh, cool. He's on Instagram. Brian, yes. He's Finally on the IG. My new, yep. Finally He's fulfilled my year's resolution and joined Instagram. So well cool. done. We're so excited that you're there. Thanks so Thank much, you, Mike. Ladies. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Take care.